From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And we welcome you to Open Line Thursday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. Jack Williams uh, is away today. I'm Tom Price uh, filling in for Jack and very glad to be joined by America's favorite Dominican, Father Brian Milady. Uh How are you feeling today, Father? Well, I'm just getting up from COVID, so uh, I feel better than I did a few days ago, that's for sure. So a, l- so, a, l- a, little, bit, yeah, a l- little a little bit better every day, right? Right. Well, that's a good thing. We're delighted that you're uh, feeling better and uh, very glad that you can uh, answer some questions from our good listeners. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Now, if you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205-271-2985. Or you can shoot us uh, an email, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Father Brian in the subject line or Thursday so that we can make sure we uh, match up the right question with the right host. Before we get to the phones, uh, Father, you were going to talk a little about uh, St. Peter and St. Paul, right? Yes, we celebrated their feast day yesterday, and they're the pillars of our church, and that's um, uh, for many reasons. The first is, of course, they were both chosen by Christ, but in very different ways. Peter was chosen by Christ while he was personally present here on earth to be the head of the church and also, you know, on earth, and also the the exercise of authority and the apostle to the Jews. Paul was chosen by Christ after he rose from the dead he said, in a way, out of uh, out of being born, he was an apostle too, though, and he was chosen to spread the mission to the Gentiles. They both suffered terribly to do this, and eventually they wound up in Rome, where the Acts of the Apostles ends, both of them, and they both were uh, under household arrest, it seems, in different places. Mm. Some people think that they spent some time in the Mamertine prison, which is what's where you go in Rome to the, um, you know, the, the uh, shrine, you could say, uh-huh, uh-huh. Of the time they spent in prison, and it's very instructive. It's really very close to the Piazza Venezia in Rome. And then, of course, they were both martyred, Peter by crucifixion and Paul by beheading. And there's actually a place in Rome called Tre Fontane, outside the city walls, where supposedly St. Paul's head bounced three times. Wow. And springs came to be from that experience. Wow. (laughs) Tre Fontane, the three fountains. Mm. But when you consider the personalities of both of them, Paul was probably more choleric and Peter was more sanguine. But in both instances, they completely served the Church of God. And so they're enshrined basically in the holy city of Rome. 
and their examples as teachers of the faith and the law of God, uh, both in the authoritative sense in Peter's case and in the charismatic sense in a certain way in Paul's case, both of them point out different aspects of the Christian religion to us. And they're actually, of course, at the seat of where the Sea of Peter is, which led the ancient authors, Ignatius of Antioch is one of them, to call Rome the mother of all the churches because it was the church of the apostles and martyrs. And Paul and Peter were both apostles and martyrs and very important ones too. So we celebrate uh, their feast on 29th of June and it's normally considered to be the time either of the translation of their relics or of their deaths. Now, no one's exactly certain after all these centuries, Mm -hmm, but they give credence to the foundation of our church as the one true church. And in fact, the prayer for the feast tells us that they are the authors of true religion. Wow. If we are looking for true religion, we need look no further than both the teaching of St. Peter and the teachings of St. Paul, both from different points of view. It's kind of sad, and this feast was actually celebrated in the Eastern Church. Also, the Lutherans have a commemoration of it. In many countries in Europe, it's a holy day of obligation. Now, it isn't in this country, or has been since the 1840s. But still, it emphasizes very much and underlines the Church of the Apostles and Martyrs as the Church of Rome. And we may therefore thank God that we are in union with Rome, We're either Roman Catholics, Latin Catholics, or in union with Rome, so that both their teachings and their example may form true religion in us. Mm. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, If you're just joining us, this is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN Radio. I have a couple of uh, lines open for you right now. If you've got a question for Father Brian, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. A couple of emails here before we go to break, Father. David wants to know, where do our ideas of purgatory come from? The ideas of purgatory basically come from the Old Testament. They also come from the idea, even in in pagan mythology, that there's a place called Sheol, or Hades, which is not exactly hell, not exactly heaven, but a time of um, purging. And the scriptural evidence is, of course, of a book that the Protestants don't really except as authoritative, and that's Maccabees, where Judas, after a battle, found that some of his army that were Jewish were dead, and there were pagan amulets under their clothing. So rather than write them off as perhaps damned, Mm -hmm. because they did participate in the battle to help Israel, he had a sacrifice offered for them. And he said, it's a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead. 
Now, since time immemorial, Christians have offered the Mass, the Eucharist, for the dead. Well, why do that? If they're in heaven, they don't need it. If they're in hell, it won't help them. And the idea is that because we're offering prayers and Masses for the dead, that this is an attempt to help them who now cannot purge themselves actively because they've, they've left their bodies to purge themselves passively, and we can do it for them in a certain sense. Now, some people suffer their purgatory on earth. You know, if you have a terrible illness that's, that has great suffering, you can offer for your own sins or the sins of others. But in case that hasn't happened, the idea is that it's not a divine ledger system and it's not the fact that sinners get away with it. But God's mercy is such that if in the last bone of a person's life, they'd lived a wicked life that they repented, they opened the door to God's mercy at all, that they become worthy of heaven. But they have all this dross left in their character mm. that led them to do all these things on earth that were not really good. Then let's say they started a war and millions were killed. Well, so that has to be made up for by someone. Hmm. A classic example is that, uh, let's say your friend had a prized possession, like a, <clears throat> oh, if you're a man, a Ferrari, and if you're a woman, a, <coughs> excuse me. That's okay. A beautiful dress. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And in a fit of rage, you smashed it up. Now, your friend is a particularly forgiving person. Mm. So you're instantly remorseful when you ask for forgiveness and your friend forgives you. The trouble is that the car is still sitting there broken up yeah. or the dress is still sitting there um, destroyed. So that has to be restored somehow. And we bring a lot of things from Earth that haven't been restored in us. And the idea in purgatory is that whereas you actively, by the pursuit of virtues or something, could restore things on earth, you can't do that after death. Right. So you use yourself in the center of self. All right. Well, we thank you so much uh, for that uh, email. And in a moment, we're going to get to the phones. If you've got a question for Father Brian Maletti, do give us a call at 833 833- 288-EWTN. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Very glad you could join us for Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. A couple of lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 
288-3986. One of the important programs on EWTN every weekend is EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly. Prudence Robertson keeps you informed and educated with the latest news and truth on abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, and the culture of death on EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly. And right now we can send you our Pro-Life Weekly directly to your email inbox each and every week. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Susan in Melbourne, Florida, listening on the great Divine Mercy Radio. Hey, Susan, what's on your mind today? Ah, what's on my mind? Thank you for taking my call. What's on my mind is Nancy Pelosi receiving communion at the Vatican and the fact that her Archbishop Cordelioni has uh, instructed everyone not, you know, in his diocese not to not to uh, give her communion. So I would just like to hear what Father Milady has to say about this. Okay. All right. Someone asked me actually about this today. Nancy Pelosi, according to her, was on vacation with her family there. So she happened to attend Mass at St. Peter's on the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul. Do you know how many people attend Mass at St. Peter's with the Pope on the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul? <laughs> probably 10,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some, she just probably let know to have a photo op that she was somewhere in this Mass of Humanity. The Pope didn't give her communion because they got communion from the Holy Father. In a papal mass, you have to have a ticket. And there's only 20 or 30 people, maybe 100 at maximum, that get tickets. Everybody else, there's about 50 Eucharistic priests that go around to serve communion. They don't have any idea who any of these people are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So she basically snuck in anonymously to go to communion. I'm sure nobody had any idea who she was. So that's the solution to that. Okay. Well, very good. And uh, Susan, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Dove is listening in Monroe, Georgia, via podcasting. Hello, Dove. What's on your mind today? Hi. Good afternoon with you guys. Howdy. Howdy. Um, I called earlier... And um, I'm a little skeptic about something. I converted, to make a long story short, I converted in 2018 after my mom died. I was a Baptist, African-American, mm-hmm. St. Paul Baptist. I converted to capitalism. Um, in fact, I saw it on EWTN. I just so happened to turn the channel, and it was this, this Catholic channel. I stayed with it, and all of a sudden, I just kept on watching it, kept on watching it. All of a sudden, I was doing the ceremony, but I was doing the ceremony here in my home. I also learned that left-handed people are the product of the devil. Am I right? I'm left-handed, and I just learned about all the superstition about left-handed people, and I also learned that the devil was left-handed, and he baptized his followers, I would say, with his left hand. Okay, uh, Father, have you heard of anything like this? No, no. Uh, in former times, 
let's say, 100 years ago, people tried to get people to write right-handedly for various reasons. But, but we never, as a church, by our wildest dreams, taught anyone that, that because they were left-handed that, that they were tools of the devil. Yeah, so you don't have to worry about that, Bob. Uh, and But uh, thank you so much for calling, and very glad that you are now uh, officially a Catholic. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN Radio. Interesting what people call in about, isn't it, Father? Yes, yes. Never a dull moment here on EWTN. Let's go to uh, Ralph now in Tulsa, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Radio. Fra- uh, Ralph, what's on your mind today? Uh, I wanted to didn't have a question. I wanted to comment I could that might bring hope to some of the listeners. Okay, what was that again? Uh, could you repeat it, Ralph? We had a little uh, disturbance there. Yeah, I said I didn't have a question. I wanted to make a comment. Okay, that might might bring hope to to the listeners. Okay, go right ahead. For several months, I have fought cancer. And it entered my lung, and then they told me my heart, and they gave me two months to live. And I have not been a very good Catholic at all. And my brother said, I think it's time you call a priest. So a Monsignor came by and asked me, when was your last confession? I'm 68 years old, and my last confession when I was 14. He said, when's the last time you've been to Mass? I said, I can't remember, Father. He said, now we're going to talk about your sin. You know, over the years when I sinned, I always asked God for forgiveness. Uh, And I thought, you know, I'd be forgiven, which... When you ask, you are, if you're a believer. However, in front of the Monsignor, I confessed every sin I've ever done in my life. Every one of them. And when he absolved me, I felt like a great weight was lifted. Mm. And then he said, I'm going to give you the anointing of the sick. And he did. I thanked him. He says, hey, you're not done yet. (laughs) And he gave me a bunch of rosaries to say, and I've been saying them. When he left, I hugged him. And for weeks, I couldn't move uh, without getting out of breath. I hadn't eaten in weeks. I lost 35 pounds. That evening, I got up, and the energy in me was unreal. I went to the kitchen. I made a tuna casserole with green peas, and I had three helpings by 12 noon. And since then, I've been eating like a horse. Wow. And I feel fantastic. And my oncologist called and said, well, I've got a couple more immunotherapies you might try. They won't cure you, but they'll help you in your last day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't need them. 
she said, what do you mean? I said, I'm being healed as we're speaking. She goes, I don't understand. So I explained it to her, Uh and she said, well, I can't get in the way of faith. Is there anything else I can do for you? I said, yeah. She said, what? I said, pray for me. Wow. That is beautiful. Father, you've you've certainly heard stories like this over the years, right? Yes. Yeah, well, the anointing had more than a spiritual effect, obviously, there. Sure. So. Yeah. Thank um, you very much for sharing your story. Thank mm-hmm. you, Ralph. Appreciate hearing from you in Oklahoma. It's wonderful to hear stories like that, yes. It, it really, really is. We, we do appreciate that. Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Let's go now to uh, Susan in Anchorage. And Susan is listening online, EWTN.com. Hello, Susan. What's on your mind today? Hi, Father Brian. I have a question. Since you had mentioned purgatory earlier, I am wondering about your opinion on the 12-year prayers of St. Bridget of Sweden um, that you say for 12 years. And, of course, they were approved by Pope Clement the 12th. And I'm just wondering what what you think. Okay. Well, I have no opinion because I don't know much about them. Uh, all I would say is I'd be aware of a magical kind of idea where you just do this and nothing, you're, you're going to be freed from hell for and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, that may be true, provided you believe in it and provided you live it. But I, I really know nothing about the promises of St. Bridget of Sweden, so... All right. And Susan, thank you so much for your call. Always good to hear from our friends in Alaska. Here's a great email for you, especially you, Father. This is from Daryl, who says, Did St. Thomas Aquinas teach sola scriptura? Did St. Thomas Aquinas teach sola scriptura? No, because no serious Catholic scholar has ever taught sola scriptura. For one thing, the scriptures are the result of tradition, and both have to go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, St. Thomas, one of the reasons he didn't hold for the Immaculate Conception, uh, he believed that Mary was um, cleansed, conceived in original sin, and then immediately cleansed. Because it was a, a, a theological difficulty that she cast to be among the redeemed, which Scotus eventually saw. But one of the arguments was, the Church of Rome doesn't celebrate this feast, which is an argument from tradition, really. And uh, no, no serious Catholic scholar has ever maintained that uh, you can just have only Scripture. Very good. However, Scripture is always privileged oh, okay. because it's inspired by God directly. Okay. Appreciate that. Daryl, thanks so much uh, for your email. Verna wants to know, did the Catholic Church determine the books of the Bible? Uh, The Catholic Church determined which books that come to us in the ancient church truly and fully reflected our faith. So they determined the canon, what's called the canon of Scripture. Mm -hmm. In other words, the books that are directly inspired by God. There are some things in some of the other books that we accept by tradition, but we haven't declared those books to be inspired one example is the presentation of Mary in the temple, which is described. Her her whole childhood is actually described in the Proto-Evangelium of St. James. 
which is, and that part of it's been accepted enough. So we celebrate a feast of her and a feast of Joachim and a feast of Anne. Mm-hmm. The gospel itself has not been considered to be inspired. And even less is true of travesties, which are heretical. And unfortunately, modern scholars have tried to make the source for our doctrine like the Gospel of Thomas. Mm, yeah. Okay. Appreciate that. Uh, Verna, thank you so much uh, for your email. In a moment, we're going to talk with Amy in Frisco, Texas, uh, in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Also, Joan in Gulfport, Mississippi. A couple of lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, glad you're with us for Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. We're just at the halfway point, so still plenty of time to get your call in at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, big congratulations to two members of the EWTN radio family, Armor of God Radio. That is a KOOV in Kepner, Texas, celebrating four years with EWTN Radio this week. Also, KKSJ FM 107.5 in Beloit, Kansas, celebrating three years of solid Catholic radio with EWTN. All right, back to the phones right now, and uh, here is Amy in Frisco, Texas. Amy, what's on your mind today? Hi. It's an easy question, I I think. Okay. Okay, so we allow a gluten-free host at mass now my question is i have celiac disease but i don't do that i i take a regular host and i have a friend that isn't celiac but she does the gluten-free host and i don't know how to i I guess the question is if we believe that that once it's consecrated that it's the body of jesus why would it hurt anybody if they had celiac disease oh Okay. Well, because uh, as I understand it, I'm obviously not an expert in this. Have a, some people have a terribly allergic reaction to gluten, much as some of the people, you know, with peanuts, you can't even open them up in a plane and they, I don't know, go into shock or something. Yeah. But, yeah. So out of deference for these people, we uh, have made hosts it's of such a character for some that it has to somehow have wheat and flour in it somehow, but that it has the minimum necessary in order for the change in the Eucharist to take place. Um, I don't know the, I find the Christian faithful's attitude or this rather strange sometimes that, you know, the accidents remain the same and the accidents of the properties well, they somehow seem to think that since this is the Eucharist, God would keep the natural effects of the properties from occurring if it was something detrimental. I've had people tell me, because uh, I'll say, occasionally say once in a great while, people make a mistake at Mass and they fill the chalices up too much. Uh-huh. And so I've had to consume two full chalices of the precious blood with hardly anything to eat at 11 o'clock in the morning. Oh, my. 
And of course, this may be almost inebriated. <laughs> and they'll say, well, well, gee, that's the Eucharist. That wouldn't do that to you. I said, what? You don't think the properties of wine are going to make you intoxicated? Sure. Of course they are. Sure. So it's, it's to minimize the effect. Now, I do believe that some people are fanatics about this. And I had some bad experiences about it, too. I remember there was a mother who waited till mass was over and I was alone in this strange church and had no idea how to open the tabernacle. No one was there anymore. And to tell me that her son had a food allergy and I had to give him communion out of a special place in the tabernacle. Uh, so I took me 15 minutes to find the key and I finally opened it up. And as I put my hand in the ciborium, she said, stop cross-contamination. Use these tweezers. Don't touch that. Wow. And I, really? <laughs> so, and then she insisted on receiving through tweezers too. I said, I've never given communion through tweezers. Mm. What do I do with them? Are they gold? <laughs> do I purify them or what? And I went over and told the pastor and I, I said, I met the tweezer lady and I thought he'd die laughing. And he said, you might've touched a peanut sometime in the last 10 years. Oh, wow. I, I, I don't know. Sometimes some of the poor, these poor people, I, I feel sorry for them, but they, they're, they're too much. Mm. So the church though recognizes that we want to make communion as easy as possible. And we certainly don't want to cause people to have sh anabolic shock. Sure, or sure. Okay. Yeah. Very good. And uh, thank you so much for your call, Amy. It's Open Line Thursday with yes. Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN Radio. Uh, time for your call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to Joan in Gulfport, Mississippi, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Joan, what's on your mind today? Hi, good afternoon, and thank you all both for taking my question. Sure. Um, I uh, heard, uh, I listen to WTN when I'm in the radio, or in the car, I'm sorry, I'm mm -hmm. listen, I listen to the radio when I'm in the car, and about two, three, maybe four weeks ago, a caller called in, a um, gentleman wanted to know um, if, it, um, if a mass is required um, on the altar. I, the other day I went to a chapel, uh, associated with our parish church, um, and noticed, um, after a while that there it was a small chapel, small altar, that there was no cross, no crucifix on the altar. And I started wondering, well, what's the validity, if any, of the mass? And then I thought, well, did our parish church altar have a crucifix on the altar? Yeah, have a crucifix on the altar. Does that now the priest that responded to that question said yes, it is required that there should be a cross crucifix on the altar. So take it one step further, if you can. Okay, well, the mass wouldn't be invalid if there's no crucifix there. It would be inappropriate. And the crucifix has to somehow be present. So some people have these huge crucifixes right over the altar, mm -hmm. but are not resting on it. Um, also, there's a thing called the Greek corporal. And some people in smaller churches get this in the Greek church. And it substitutes for an altar stone. 
So uh, that a person could use that underneath the altar cloth to establish the sacred space of the altar. It should be uh, celebrated on an altar, but if there's none available, mm-hmm. say you're hiking in the woods or something, I don't know, uh, and you decide you wanted to have mass on stone or something, uh, it would uh, it still would be valid, but it would be inappropriate. It would certainly be inappropriate to do that every every Sunday or every day. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there you go, Joan. Thank you so much uh, for your call. Appreciate hearing from you. Uh, Belinda sent us an email, Father. Belinda says, what does the church teach about predestination, and how does that work with free will? What say you? (laughs) Oh, gee, that's an easy question to answer in two minutes on the radio. Good, good. (laughs) Well, the problem with Protestant predestination is double predestination which means that God has already damned people before they start out or saved people before they start out. And actually, people like the Puritans thought you could know who was damned or saved by how much money they made or whatever. Mm. Now, we don't believe that. We believe that God has a, um, an initial will that all be saved, but then he has what's called a subsequent will too because it's according to how they respond to the gifts that they're given. So uh, when we respond to the gift of grace or or to the fruits that are offered to us, then we participate in this initial predestination. And and, and a part of God's predestination is that since we're free beings, he doesn't force us like slaves. He wants sons and daughters and heirs. H-E-I-R-S. Mm-hmm. And so as a part of this predestination, our free will is necessarily involved if we have a free will. Now, of course, uh, exercise of it. Now, children below the age of reason have a free will, but they don't have exercise of it. So a baby that's baptized would participate in the predestination of Christ and be saved. What happens when they reach seven or around the time when they become able to participate somehow in this has a lot to do with how the effects of baptism uh, enter into their character. So in his initial predestination, God wished, obviously, to found the world so we could all go to heaven. Again, the Baltimore Catechism is very simple in this, but very uh, complete. Why did God make me? He made me to show forth his goodness and to make me happy with him in heaven. But in God's subsequent will, he insists that this be done as we are able to do by freedom. And of course, as he knows who will choose and who won't, he doesn't will that in the sense that he forces them to do it, but he knows who will and throughout their life, Mm -hmm. the vicissitudes that happen to us eventually wind up affirming his salvation or not. And, of course, that's a part of his one act of will, which is eternal when the world is created. So it's a very mysterious thing. If you want a homey example of how this was explained, the little flower is very good in this. Because she wondered why some people have been given so many gifts, like St. Paul, for instance, and other people hadn't been given that many helps. 
Well, we've all been given the sufficient help of the cross. But as to other things, that's all in God's love and his uh, personal providence for us. And we don't really know what is involved in all that. And it's very mysterious. Mm-hmm. So her opinion was, as long as you're in the garden, it doesn't matter if you're a little flower or a big rose, a big flower, a beautiful wow. flower. Uh, uh, God has predestined everybody somehow, if they correspond to it, to be in the um, garden of Jesus. And, you know, she, and that was an image she took from St. Augustine. And, you know, uh, also she's the patroness of the missions because she was so interested in bringing the means of salvation to people who hadn't heard the gospel yet, though she never left Lixia. Fascinating. Appreciate that. And uh, Belinda, thank you so much for your email. It's uh, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN Radio. There's still time for your call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, one of the great uh, programs we have for you cooked up each and every weekend is Divine Intimacy Radio with Dan and Stephanie Burke. Uh, You can hear that Sunday morning at 6.30 a.m. Eastern. This week, can a demon-possessed person go to heaven? Uh, Their guest will be exorcist Monsignor Stephen Rossetti. So do check it out Sunday morning, 6.30 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Martha has an email sent to us, Father. Martha says, where do marriage vows come from? Are they in the Bible? And if so, where? And why does the marriage commitment end with death? What do you think, Father? All right, well, marriage is in a state that turns around having children. One of the problems we've had today is that people, by contraception, have tried to divorce marriage mm-hmm. and sexuality from children. But the procreation and education of children is a part of what makes the marriage bond different from ordinary friendship. And since children, of course, our concern for them is only in this world, it's a bond that only lasts for this world. It's not a heavenly bond. That's why Christ says, in heaven they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And you'll notice when he says that, he says to the Sadducees, you understand neither reason or faith. Because in heaven... They're like angels. Now, he doesn't mean they are angels. They still have bodies. But our love is only spiritual there, and there's no carnal aspect to it. Since there's no carnal aspect, our spiritual children would only be spiritual children. They're not physical ones. Now, the origin of marriage vows comes, first of all, from the natural law. And there are any um, ritual or phrase that a society accepts as establishing the desire of these people to spend their lives together, basically oriented around the procreation and education of children. So in some places you jump over a broomstick. In other places you um, have some very specific words you say, mm-hmm. and the purpose is to set these people apart so that other people know that this very unique relationship is only enjoyed by them. In the case of the Christian church, uh, we've pretty much determined 
though the form comes from Christ, uh, um, and uh, I, I will espouse you to you, is a phrase that is used in the Old Testament several times for, for God and Israel. That form is translated into the New Testament in the words that we use to express the consent. The consent is the real issue to these goods. And so the formula in some way has to express that consent. So the words may alter depending on the culture or the place, but they all have to have as their purpose the expression of the same consent, which is namely to enjoy an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman turning around the family. Okay. Very good. And uh, Martha, thank you so much for your email. Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Julie in uh, Arkansas, Judy rather, Judy in Arkansas says, I don't understand the idea of praying to our Lord as a child or a baby. I'm an adult, and so was Jesus when he was teaching. Can you help me understand this? Jesus, of course, experienced the full gamut of what it means to be a human being. Mm -hmm. And in the revelations which occurred after his death, he also represented himself in different ways. So things like the infant of Prague, for example, are an attempt to pray to the Lord, who, of course, now you're right, is an adult, but did experience a human childhood. And so we can't deny that to him. And just as a family, I don't know, you, know, you look at the photograph album, oh, where you, you were cute when you were a little boy, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, in a similar way, we think about Jesus in all the facets of his human life, and that's also in his childhood. So the child Jesus helps us to experience the fact that the Lord is Lord of everybody, including little children. And so our praying for that today would be to look at Christ after a certain aspect of his life. Many people keep photographs of adult children when they were babies or, or young children because they seem so different. I, I just had my 50th anniversary of ordination, and there's a picture that exists of myself and of one of our other priests when we were both 28 years old. Mm. Well, <laughs> everybody seems to recognize Father Anthony, but nobody seems to recognize me for some reason. <laughs> I must have changed a lot. Maybe so. And, uh, yes. And uh, so they they like seeing it, though, because it helps them to appreciate the, the adult. Sure. So it's a similar way with our Lord. All yeah. right. Very good. And Judy, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Gary. This is a Bible question. Why does the New American Bible translate Luke, translate Luke 1.28 as Hail Favored One? instead of hail full of grace, as in other Catholic Bibles. Also, the Bible says in Acts 6-8 that Stephen was full of grace. Was he equal to the Virgin Mary in the fullness of grace? <laughs> well, the first one's easy to answer. That was our feeble attempt at ecumenism. Because <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, the King James doesn't say full of grace, because they didn't like Mary being full of grace. Right. Uh, uh, they wanted to be against too much exaltation of Our Lady. Mm -hmm. 
translated as highly favored daughter, but it really doesn't make it. Because the, the word kakaratomani in Greek literally means full of grace. I don't know what the word is in Greek for um, Stephen's capacity, but he's full of grace in the sense that he's full of divine fervor, as I believe the context of that is in his martyrdom. Mm -hmm. And he preaches, and then when he looks into heaven and sees the risen Jesus, which of course for them would be blasphemy, at the right hand of the Father, yeah. no one is, has as much grace as the Blessed Virgin does. Okay. She starts out where everybody else ends, and she's higher than the angels. She's higher than all because she loves God, first of all, as a bride, and secondly, as a virgin mother, and is his mother, in fact, by human nature. Yes, indeed. Gary, thank you so much uh, for your email. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Try to get a few more questions in uh, before we have to say goodbye. Uh, Frederick sent us an email. How does Aquinas reconcile the metaphysical conclusions of Aristotle that God is one and unique and has no shadow of potentiality and that God is a trinity? Well, the same reason the Christian Church does. The Christian Church recognizes no potentiality in God. None of the creeds do. And the reason is because if there were potentiality in God, there'd have to be change. So the fact that there are three persons, remember the only um, a difference is by relation of origin. And this is seen very beautifully in the Athanasian Creed. All three are gods, all three are lords, and yet the Father is Lord without beginning, the Son is Lord proceeding, and the Holy Spirit is Lord also, you know, proceeding by inspiration. Um, there is no division in God in either. And so Aristotle's very easily reconciled with them, only in the sense that we believe it now. Remember, you can't prove the Trinity. It's something we have to take on faith and then try to understand it, what it's actually showing to us. Again, when I was a little boy in the Baltimore Catechism, they had an illustration in the, in the lesson on the Trinity from the life of St. Augustine, where he wrote a very profound book on the Trinity, you know. Mm -hmm. And he was walking along the shores in North Africa, and he came upon the scene of a little boy digging a hole in the sand and trying to running to the ocean and taking a bucket of water and dumping it in the hole. So he was intrigued by this, and he said, what are you trying to do anyway? He said, well, I'm trying to put the ocean in the hole. And St. Augustine said, well, you can't do it. It's impossible. The hole's too small and the ocean's too big. And the little boy said, I know. That's the same with the Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> The wow. Trinity of the mystery is too big and the human mind is too small. It yeah. disappeared because it was the child Jesus. Wow. Um, wow. The incarnation is the same. You know, the incarnation is a mystery of God that we do understand a lot about because we can define it and affirm and deny things about it, but we'll never understand how God could choose to sure. become man and die on the cross from love for us totally. You can't prove it. You have That's one Thing, you have what they call probable arguments to show that they're not against reason, mm -hmm. but not that reason can exhaust it. Very good. Right. Frederick, uh, thank you so much for your email. Here's one now from Pamela. 
What is the meaning of the expression in the Nicene Creed, he rose again from the dead? Again, oh, yeah. Is, yeah. That the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just means that he came back to life again. That's okay. all. Okay. Very good. And then uh, there's this one here from Yaroslaw. How should I pray for my spiritual director properly? And do we have to pray for priests? Well, you don't have to. (laughs) You're perfectly free to pray for us or not, but don't you think we need it? I mean, really, uh, now more than ever. Sure, sure. I just was dealing with a diocese where three of their priests ordained less than five years have left the priesthood. Oh, no. Uh, Yeah, I mean, we need it now more than ever. And part of the reason is, is the world is so much against it. Part of the reason is because the seminaries aren't really all they should be. They're trying hard from the 80s, but they're not really all they should be. And also part of the reason is that, and I hate to say this, but the laity expects so much of us now, mm-hmm. uh, so many planes, that there's no person that's possible. It's possible for any one person to come up to it all. You know, be CEO and be this and go to meetings and this, prepare for the sacraments, this, 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 this. Um, it's like I used to tell the seminarians, just imagine now in your Sunday sermon, they expect, okay, long, make it not too long, but don't make it too short either. Make it accessible so I can understand it, but don't make, treat me like a child. Give me something to think about, but don't make it too deep. Uh, and they go down the list and I said, and make it interesting and different every Sunday to the same group. Mm. It's almost no person who speechifies that can, that can come up to this. It's impossible. Yeah. Or if you just stick to trying to explain the scriptures and occasionally have a fun story and things like that and not make it too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the day too long. Attention spans are very short. Everything will be fine. Well, in my family, we pray for priests, and you are certainly on our list, Father Brian Mullady. Could you please leave us with your blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Um, amen. And I certainly hope that you're continuing to uh, improve from uh, COVID and uh, that you're feeling better every day, Father. Me too. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for all that you do for EWTN and for all of our wonderful listeners. Don't forget to join us tomorrow at this time for Open Line Friday with our own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until then, have a wonderful day and God bless.